In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Peter, in Acts, reports that he and others ate and drank with Jesus after his death. John tells of Mary seeing Jesus alive again outside his tomb. Paul writes, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. In fact, he said. Paul wasn't there that Sunday morning. He knew people who were and had heard from them what happened. On Paul's account, Jesus appeared first to Peter, then to the so-called Twelve, then to a group of more than 500 witnesses, then to some others, and last but not least, to him. Resurrection occurred in 33 AD. Scholars agree that Paul was writing in 53 or 54 AD, so 20 years after the events. Many of the witnesses were still alive to tell the story. His readers could ask them if they doubted Paul. Being from Little Rock, when I read about the Twelve, it reminds me of the Nine. Along with Rhett Tucker, I served on the commission to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the 1957 crisis at Central High. The Little Rock Nine is what we call the nine brave black students at the center of that storm. But at commission meetings, I noticed that the people who'd been closest to them referred to the students simply as the nine. At the 40th anniversary, all nine were still alive to tell the story. If I told you what had happened and you doubted me, you could ask them. We are now going on 60 years since 1957. With eight of them, you can still ask. Only Jefferson Thomas has gone on to his reward. I can think of at least three world religions that were founded in a moment of disclosure to just one man. Reportedly, the risen Christ appeared to several hundred. All knew that he had been crucified. Some of them had seen that too. Do you doubt that he was crucified? that he was raised is just as well attested. An Orthodox Jewish scholar, Pincus Lapid, has called the evidence for Jesus' resurrection compelling, though as a Jew he is not convinced it means that Jesus was Messiah. I have not read Lapid, so I know this at second hand. My source is Craig Keener's book, The Historical Jesus of the Gospels. Professor Keener used to be an atheist, but now he is a believer. He tells us that while many other of his fellow scholars personally doubt the resurrection on philosophical grounds, for the most part they do accept that Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the rest, were left deeply convinced that Jesus, who had died, had risen. 
Keener writes, whatever one does with the more controversial question of divine causation, the best evidence suggests that the first witnesses believed that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. They interpreted Jesus' current life as resurrected life, a foretaste of the new order. And they were convinced enough as to the nature of this life to stake the rest of their lives on Jesus' resurrection. That much can hardly be doubted. I'm thinking now about those scholars who accept this historical assessment while personally not believing in the resurrection. Keener said this is for philosophical reasons. What philosophy might be at work in such a judgment? There are many, I am sure. I will talk about one. Marilyn Robinson, who won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for her novel Gilead, teaches creative writing to exceptional students in the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. She describes her students as excellent, large-spirited people, really exemplary. These students are the kind of people we would happily call friends and would be proud to have as children. In class, Marilyn asks her young writers to describe their assumptions about human motivation. Why will people do what they do in the stories they will write? What drives them? Often, students respond to that question with what Marilyn calls the selfishness hypothesis. Taking for granted that, I quote, the substratum of all behavior is self-interest. The students believe, she says, that in our essence, we are the brutes that we always were, and by extension, so is everyone with whom we have to deal. Against their own hypothesis, Marilyn points out to the students that they don't behave like brutes. Far from it. So she writes, there is no reason to suppose that either reflection or experience would have led them to so dark a view of their kind. Why then would they believe a philosophy so deeply at odds with the way they try to live? Probing that, she finds that they picked it up in school through modern interpreters of Darwin, including Freud. As Robinson says, this notion of human nature was taught to them as true, and good students that most of them are, they have accepted it as true. And ruefully, she adds, and it has had significant consequences for their fiction, for history writing too, I think. Friends keep telling me that fundamentalism is the problem in today's America. I doubt that. Fundamentalism is the sideshow. Outside church walls, it is powerless to reach our children. The television shows they watch make it look sinister or stupid. Their movies, even more so. You'll not detract, detect a trace of fundamentalism in their video games and music and it has been banished from the books they read in school. By contrast, the philosophy that Robinson discovered in her writer's workshop students runs strong in all those sectors with consequences for our country, like lead in drinking water.
it blurs our vision. The myth of science-religion conflict is my favorite case in point. That myth was this philosophy's invention. I know that the historic record better supports a claim that Judeo-Christianity gave rise to science than it does belief that the two are inherently conflicted. Alas, the latter is the warped opinion we absorb from culture, and that is a problem in today's America. Even more important, rather than any science, it is this philosophy that has made Jesus' resurrection seem incredible to some. Even though the evidence better supports the claim that he was raised than that he wasn't. To be sure, at such long remove, the evidence alone is not enough to create faith in us. The creation of faith is the work of the Holy Spirit, but evidence supports it. Let's go back to Paul, this time not as a witness to the fact of Jesus' resurrection, but now for some thought regarding its importance. Paul likens Christ to Adam. He says, death came through a man, Adam. Life comes through a man, Christ. As we die in Adam, we live in Christ. Christ, the new Adam. That's Paul's formulation. For the record, as a science-minded Christian, I do not read death came through Adam as a literal description of an historical event. But I do take Christ has been raised for a literal historical occurrence. And to be perfectly clear, Adam is fictional, like Harry Potter and Augustus McRae, while Jesus is historical, like Larry McMurtry and J.K. Rowling. Blending myth and fact does not weaken Paul's analogy. For teaching purposes, I use Gus and Harry alongside Thomas Aquinas and Karl Barth all the time. Mixing and matching makes teaching fun. In an analogy, a familiar truth, the theme, is used to help us see the truth in something new or less familiar, the phoros. Theme, phoros. For example, theme. As Joe Namath was to quarterbacking, so is phoros. Kerry McCoy to ushering at Trinity Cathedral. You get it? If you know Broadway Joe in football, you now know how Carrie runs her ushers, which is to say that in the back they talk smack. <laughs> That's an analogy. And here's another. As brains were to scarecrow and heart to tin man and courage to the lion, so to you are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Long before you know it, they are already yours. Paul's analogy works from familiarity with death. We arm ourselves against it with seat belts and bike helmets. We prepare for it with insurance policies and estate plans. We drill our children to protect them from it. Look both ways before you cross the street. Never walk behind that horse. Stay away from trees and thunderstorms. Please, please, please don't text and drive. Death is as familiar to us as our nightmares. There is no escaping death for Adam. If Paul were writing now, he might say, death is in our DNA. 
in this analogy, death's impression on us is the theme. Easter is the forest. At every point that we meet death and Adam, so much more do we find life in Christ. As seat belts and bike helmets are signs of one, communion bread and wine are signs of the other. As wills and trusts are preparation for the former, a well-balanced life is preparation for the latter. As in Adam, we warn the little ones to look right and left before they cross the street. So in Christ, we teach them right from wrong. That horse might kick, they learn from Adam. I hear thunder, we better get inside. Blessed are the pure in heart, they learn from Christ. And as thunder is to lightning, so are organ, timpani, and bells to resurrection. In Christ, we know full well that we are more than brutes and that our universe is guided to a purpose much higher than our own self-interest. The moon orbits the earth as the earth is circling the sun. Picture your soul as the moon. Death is the earth and Christ as sun. Do you see? As death holds you in its power, so much the more does Christ hold death in his. The greater of that pair of spinning truths is what we celebrate this morning.